Get ready, ladies and gentlemen, to vote addiction off the island. Good morning, everyone. How are you today? Oh, come on, you can do better than that. It's early in the morning. You've had your coffee. How are you today? Now we're talking. My name is Neil Scott. I'm the producer and host of Recovery Coast to Coast. It's a nightly two-hour radio talk show dealing exclusively with addiction and recovery. I'll be doing interviews for the next couple of days at our broadcast location down the hall, and I invite you to stop by and share your story or the story about your program. By the way, very important announcement, the bookstore and the internet cafe and the charging station, everybody needs a charging station these days, is going to be in Independence One. So keep that in mind. You want to visit the bookstore and the charging stations and the internet cafe in Independence One. I'd like to begin our 45th annual TAP conference by bringing up your president and my good friend, Scott Kelly, who is also the president of one of the finest and most respected treatment centers in all of Texas, Summer Sky Treatment Center. I am in awe of his passion, his energy, and his tireless commitment to treatment and recovery. In 2013, he was named the Terry Hill Addiction Professional of the Year. Say good morning to, on the island, TAP president, Scott Kelly. Thank you, Neil. Welcome. Welcome, everyone. So, I, w I need you guys to leave me on the island, so don't vote me off until till Saturday. And then on Saturday, you can vote me off. The, the TAP State Conference on Addiction Studies, 45th Annual Conference. This is amazing that 45 years TAP has been leading the way for addiction professionals and advocating for people at all levels of prevention, treatment, and recovery. As we go through this conference, I want you to pause and think about the opioid crisis, what's going on with with alcohol use disorders, methamphetamine use disorders, and all the other disorders that you guys are treating on a daily basis and helping other people to find recovery. Because that's what our, our, our main initiative is to help people. As we go through this uh, conference, I want you to go by and visit the Heart Room. This is, a, is designed for addiction professionals to help you to relax, to deal with burnout, things of that nature. We really want to do self-care. That's really why we choose this hotel, is so that we can bring you to this hotel to regenerate that energy and that passion that's within each one of y'all. Because we're all about, if we don't recharge, we can't help the people that we serve. So make sure that you do that at this conference. Also, we've got a new app that you guys may or may not know about, but it's, it's, there's a, inside your bags is a flyer, and you can download that app, and you can actually do your CEUs, check into the actual conference uh, workshops that you're going to, and then you can do the survey right there, and it'll automatically be sent back to the TAP office, and then your CEUs will actually come to you. If you choose not to do that app, at least try to experiment with it because we're going to be moving to the electronic version as the years go on. If you if you choose not to use it, there are up front some forms that you can utilize. And just go to the front desk and ask for them. And it's the traditional way that you're so used to, to uh, 
scoring your um, CEUs. As we go through this, this weekend, we also want you to experience the exhibitors. Go out and actually tell them thank you for making all this happen, you know, and, and, and providing all this wonderful stuff that we're doing at this hotel. Um, we've got a new addition to the exhibitor area. We've got uh, an entire, it's over where the heart room is in Independence 8. There's more exhibitors down in that, that area. We have some in this, this, this other hall back over here. Stop by, see them, ask them about their, their programs and spend a little time with them and getting to know those services. Those people support addiction professionals. If this is your first time at the conference, welcome to TAP. And with that, I'm going to go ahead and turn this over to our conference chairs, which is Keith, Keith Lyles and... Ellen Horst, and they're going to come up here, and let's give them a round of applause for helping us put this thing on. Good morning. How is everybody? Packed house. So we've been working on this event for probably 18 months. In fact, we've already started on next year's about three months ago. Um, that's what it takes to pull this off, and we try to raise the bar every year just a little bit more. I think we've added 20 different uh, things to the conference this year, which you may notice and you may not notice, but again, it's our effort to bring the very best to you. Um, I'd like to call the committee up. These are the folks who truly do all the work and make Ellen and I look great. Come on, guys. Big round of applause, please. <laughs> yeah, come up here. Also, certainly want to thank the Red Hat Management Company. Those are the folks out working registration. They're the behind-the-scenes folks. Um, and the Hyatt Regency, who are the most amazing host hotel for us. We will be back again next year. So, go ahead. Good morning, everyone. So, I've watched the conference grow over the years. And I've seen it grow from a meager 100 to over 700 this year. In fact, I think we're close to 800, um, which is awesome. And we do owe a huge grit of gratitude to the conference family. Um, it's my honor to announce the recipient of this year's State Conference Committee Volunteer of the Year Award, which goes to a member who we believe went over the rainbow last year's theme to make this event a success. And this year we have two winners, and that is Nicole Parker and Joseph Gerardo. Yeah. <laughs> and this, this is so they come back. <laughs> but the entire team works tirelessly all year, so another round of applause for everyone. Thank y'all. Thanks to Ellen, Keith, and the committee. One more round of applause for them, please. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, it is my honor to introduce State Senator Jose Menendez, who will read a special proclamation from the governor. Senator Menendez represents District 26, located in the San Antonio West Side. He began his public service career back in 1997 when he was elected to the San Antonio City Council District 6. 
followed by his election to serve as state representative for House District 124 in 2000. He was entrusted with an appointment to the very powerful Appropriations Committee, where he secured millions of dollars for various crucial San Antonio initiatives, as well as being appointed Chairman of the House Committee on Defense and Veterans Affairs, where he secured one of the state's largest mental health programs for veterans. Please welcome Senator Menendez. Good morning, everyone. I, I don't know if I lower this computer. You know what? I'm going to open it up more because I thought it, one time I did that, and what it did is it turned off everything on the sides, and I thought, I said, I don't want to do that this time. Hey, so good morning, everyone. I want to thank you all for inviting me to be here today at the 45th Annual State Conference, which I believe is a huge milestone, and you should be very proud. I think it's a privilege to be with you here as we come to show our appreciation for the great work that each and every one of you do every single day on a daily basis to help those in need of supportive treatment. Before I get started, you know, you heard something, and I see my friends on the far left in the color guard. I would, uh, you know, in San Antonio, those of you who aren't from here, we're known as Military City USA. Um, and we don't take that title lightly. We, we really believe it and live it every day, and we prove it. But one of the things that, before I speak, I'd like to take a second to thank and to recognize all the veterans in the audience with you. So if you are a veteran and if you can or choose to stand and be recognized or just wave, let us give a second so we can recognize and thank you. <clears throat> thank you and to your families for your continued service to our country. Uh, by your service and dedication, it's obvious that you were willing to risk everything for a cause greater than yourself. As courageous heroes, you were willing to give your life in exchange for our country, our rights, and our freedoms, and you sacrificed and learned how to rely on others to help you get through some of your hardest moments. And for some of you, the recovery and the routine back to daily life was not an easy one. But you obviously never gave up, and now the process of recovery is why we are all here. Uh, celebrating and learning together one day at a time. There is a recovery quote by Judith Herman, which I've grown to really appreciate that I'd like to share with you, and I'm sure many of you have already heard it. Recovery can only take place, can take place only in, within the context of relationships. It cannot occur in isolation. And um, how true is that? The key here is obviously to understand that this is why fellowship is so important to recovery. And I truly believe that surrounding yourselves with the right support system is the most valuable step to take in overcoming any addiction. Um, <clears throat> something I had not uh, shared publicly before, but I one day I was listening to uh, the source on Texas Public Radio, and, and it was a call about alcoholism. And I decided to call in and share my story. And, um, you know, I, have, I knew I had alcoholism on both sides of my family, and I knew that if Dad didn't have a scotch on the rocks in his hand by about 5.30, his hand would start shaking. And, um, and I knew that when I started taking alcohol from him in high school and got to college and things got worse and the blackouts, and I knew I was on my way. And... Um, 
But it's one of those things that you just don't want to ever admit. And uh, it, it is interesting to me because I've been fortunate, I've been blessed that I've been able to be sober since 1995, but Thank you, but <clears throat> it has driven the point home, and the biggest fear I have is being able to get that point across to others, especially to my kids, about how easily you can fall into uh, a life that you don't even realize you fall into, a life of addiction. And this is why the success of sobriety programs are evident in the stories that most of you have helped others overcome, either those that you've helped through your work experience or your friends or loved ones. And this is why I find it very encouraging that groups like the Texas Association of Addiction Professionals are available to offer sober living assistance through this, throughout the state of Texas by providing programs that help people rebuild their lives after coping with addictions. It is critically important that we remember the depths of people's journeys and that we are not alone on these journeys. Some of you may know that as a state senator, I represent nearly a million constituents within Senate District 26, and I truly believe that we can do more to pr help provide funding and additional resources for the deliberating disease that is addiction. And it is a disease, and unfortunately, people don't realize it. It's not a weakness. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a defect. It is a disease. It is imperative that we treat addiction and mental illness with the same level as physical ailments. It's the same as if it were hypertension or diabetes or anything else. But in the history of treatment of people with addiction problems, our system has done a very poor job at protecting people. When lives end or are not productive within our society because of illness or disease, we all suffer. With people suffering daily with no help, we must recognize that we're all paying a price for not making mental health and addiction a priority. Research has proven that depression and other mental illnesses, include substance abuse, including substance abuse disorders, are a major cause of lost productivity and absenteeism. And the stigma continues to cause many people not to receive the care they need to recover. Just look at what happened a few minutes ago. If, if I had and I did at one point, had high cholesterol, and I did something to overcome that, I would have said it proudly without any issues. I would have said, I started working out, I changed my diet, hey, you too can do it. But I had trouble talking to you about my issues with alcohol. Why? Because of the stigma. According to a 2018 report by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 57.8 million adults had, had either substance abuse disorder or mental illness. Among these, 18.9 million adults needed but did not receive special, specialty substance abuse treatment. In my role, hold on a second, as we work to address the serious gaps in mental health system, it is imperative that we continue to provide the best possible services as more and more people gain access to treatment and support. We must work hard to break down the stigmas of addiction and mental health so we can open up freely and have conversations about it without any shame. It is important to acknowledge the struggle that it takes to overcome this battle one day at a time to beat the odds that have radicalized society's way of thinking about addiction. Regardless of the point at which an individual begins receiving services, we should work towards promoting systems that create the best possible outcomes for each individual person. Public behavioral systems and policymakers should invest in evidence-based and health practices that are community-based and consumer-family-driven. 
We need to help promote recovery-oriented outcomes. Individuals living with addictions have a right to make informed decisions about their treatments and their supports. This is why, as a senator, I believe that the people of Texas are beyond, are and beyond are the best guides to provide ideas and insights that help craft legislation that can be meaningful and impactful. And in my role as a legislator, I want to give a voice to the people of Texas, but I also need your help and others to keep me informed on what's happening and help me in the legislative process. And this is why elections are critically important. Addiction does not discriminate, and it's a bipartisan issue, and it impacts peoples from all backgrounds, religions, socioeconomic statuses, and political beliefs. And this is why I am grateful to present this letter written by the governor of, of Texas, Greg Abbott, in the support of the mission and the work of TAP. <clears throat> the state of Texas Office of the Governor. Greetings. As governor of Texas, it is my pleasure to welcome all in attendance to the 45th Annual State Conference on Addiction Studies, hosted by the Texas Association of Addiction Professionals in San Antonio. The fight against chemical dependency demands to be confronted and fought on all fronts. Collaboration and coordination are imperative among prevention, intervention, and treatment professionals in order to ensure the effective support of patients on their journeys to recovery. This annual event is an incredible opportunity for those with like minds and goals in this field to network and to learn from each other. I commend the Texas Association of Addiction Professionals for their continual work to support and unite addiction professionals and to promote their advancement throughout Texas. Not only is this organization vital for those working in this profession, but it is also a critical component of the network of support for the community they serve. Your work to promote awareness of chemical dependency issues in our state helps to ensure that addiction professionals are of the utmost quality. Addiction's destructive impacts affect the physical and the emotional health of the individual and the well-being of our society as a whole. Together we can work towards eliminating addiction and recognizing those, those that help others towards recovery. First Lady Cecilia Abbott joins me in wishing you a successful conference. Sincerely signed, Greg Abbott, Governor of Texas. I also have here a proclamation from the city of San Antonio, and I'm not going to read it, the whole thing. I just want you to know that uh, Mayor Ron Nirenberg and the uh, city council congratulate you as well, and they thank you, and they look forward for a very positive conference. And so you have this proclamation. I, um, I want to thank you again for allowing me to be part of this important conference. Uh, this, uh, those of you who are from the area, uh, if you're interested on Saturday, if you've got nothing to do between 10 and 1130, uh, Congressman Lloyd Doggett and I are going to be having a town hall, and it would be important for you to bring up the issues of addiction or whatever other issues you'd like to be have heard. We're going to be at the Alamo College's district support offices on North Alamo. In closing, if any of you who aren't from here get downtown to the Riverwalk, and if you're walking along the sides of the Riverwalk, and if those of you who uh, can and do drink responsibly, but maybe you ha happen to slip and fall into the river. I just ha offer you one bit of advice. Don't panic. Just stand up. <laughs> Water is about three feet deep. Uh, it is, uh, it's good that we can joke. It's good that we can share, laugh, and, and, and cry and work together. 
And I want to thank you because not a lot of people, I'm sure that each and every one of you could be making a lot more money doing something else, but the fact that you're doing this, uh, you're helping people save their lives and helping, helping families recover their loved ones who they've lost to addiction. Thank you and God bless you. Thank you, Senator Menendez, for sharing Governor Abbott's proclamation and, more important, sharing a little bit of your own story of long-term recovery, 24 years. Another hand for our friend, our advocate, Senator Menendez. Ladies and gentlemen, please kindly welcome now the VFW Post 76 Honor Guard to present the colors. Introduce Scott Mitchell will now perform America the Beauty. Thank you very much, Scott. Let the conference begin. Ladies and gentlemen, we have two special keynote presenters with us this morning. Michael McDaniel began his law enforcement career back in 1983. He was a police officer with the city of Houston after graduating from Baylor. In 1987, he accepted a position as special agent with the Drug Enforcement Administration and was assigned to the Houston DEA office for 12 years, working domestic and international drug investigations with a particular emphasis in undercover operations and Title III wire intercepts. 1997, he was promoted to the Special Operations Division in Virginia, staff coordinator in the Southwest Border Section. In 2000, 
Michael was transferred to a group supervisor position right here in San Antonio, where he supervised DEA's San Antonio High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area Program. In 2007, he was promoted to resident agent in charge of the DEA Las Cruces, New Mexico's resident office, where he was responsible for DEA enforcement operations and the New Mexico Southwest border operations in southern New Mexico. In December of 2008, Agent McDaniel promoted to an assistant special agent in charge of the Houston DEA office. He's really risen in the ranks. Eight years ago, Michael McDaniel retired from the DEA to accept a great position with the Houston Haida director. Haida is a federally funded grant program operating under the direction of the Executive Office of the President of the United States and the Office of National Drug Control Policy. This program mandates the collaboration of federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies working alongside each other by using federal funds to establish and maintain multi-agency drug task forces to facilitate more comprehensive and successful investigative efforts in targeting international drug trafficking organizations. Also with us today is Dr. Laura Papard. She is the Associate Deputy Director for Treatment and Prevention for the Washington-Baltimore High Intensity Drug Trafficking Area. Prior to her appointment, she was an Associate Professor at George Mason University and Project Director for three federally funded behavioral health integration grants from SAMHSA. She is a passionate and dedicated clinician and scholar with a research focus on translating evidence-based practices into sustainable health care systems. She's worked on the front lines as a psychiatric nurse practitioner in emergency rooms, as well as in inpatient and outpatient settings. It is a distinct privilege to have Dr. Papard with us, and along with Michael McDaniel here on Survivor Island. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome them to the TAP 45th Annual Conference. Good morning, guys. What a, uh, what a distinct pleasure it is to be with this group. Uh, this is the first time I've been in this, uh, with this group, and uh, you guys make up a lively, I can only imagine what it's going to be like in the hotel room, out, out here in the hotel uh, tonight. Uh, it's going to be festive, I can tell. And uh, you, uh, coming from a career of law enforcement, uh, you, you may not believe this or not, but what you guys do actually, actually, to me, is a lot harder than what uh, what I've been doing for the past 30 years, and and uh, it's been nice in our in a law enforcement capacity to encounter people that are addicted and then just turn them over to you guys. And that's a I got a lot easier job than you do, and I, I really have a lot of admiration for what you guys are dealing with on a daily basis. I'm really happy to have Dr. Laura Papard with us today on your on your agendas, it says something about Jack Kalorn and a little side story that uh, was going on is when I got the invitation to be here, uh, uh, I, the ONDCP, the Office of National Drug Control Policy under the President, um, they said, you really ought to try to get Dr. Papard here with you in San Antonio. And, uh, and so that wasn't working out, so Jack said, I'll do it. And then Jack, last Thursday, ended up having a medical situation. He said, I am so sorry, you got this on your own. And ONDCP got Dr. Papard here. So uh, I'll be selling autographs out in the lobby for $25 a piece. So, uh, 
kind of kind of interesting my whole law enforcement career how it came around and if you don't take anything away from what uh, the doctor and I are going to be talking about this morning is in my law enforcement career um, there's been there's been I, I've actually made a transition because we I've been concentrating on going after the cartels and the people that are poisoning our communities and uh, and I've been thinking that you guys had your lane and law enforcement had their lane, and those lanes really didn't interact much. And in the last last eight years, in the position I am, I've I've sat down with parents, I've sat down, and the parents are just saying, "You guys got to do something." You know, my kid took this pill one time. He thought he was taking Adderall in college. I really didn't have trouble with him in college, and he died and had fentanyl in it, and you guys got to do something. And uh, it's really made me realize that, that if you don't take anything else away, we really need to be together, working together. You guys don't have your lane. Law enforcement don't have our lane. We need to really combine our resources. And, and I want Dr. Papard's going to be talking today about some innovative things going on, especially... Uh, with the opioid crisis uh, up in the Northeast and uh, in the Washington, Baltimore area. Innovative things that law enforcement and persons just like yourselves have done to actually make a difference in the community and try to cur curtail this. When it comes to the opioid crisis, we can, in Houston and all over Texas, wherever you are in Texas, we can't really say that we've had the devastation going on like we've seen in Northeast and Ohio and some of the other parts of the country. But I'll tell you, there's, there's some things when you leave here today, I hope you take away. There's, there's some indicators that if we don't get on top of this, we're going to be there at ground zero with them. And that's, that's some of the things we're going to be talking to you about today. Um, Neil was good enough. Let's see if I can. We have a... Let's see what we can do. The people that work with me would be laughing their butts off right now because they, <laughs> knowing that um, I'm up here operating a computer. Is there somebody who knows how to get this? Um... Oh, good. Awesome. Okay, great. So, so uh, Neil was good. He kind of gave you an orientation of what Haida is. Um, Haida... Haida, the bottom line to Haida is it's funded under the office of the president, and that's really important. And you'll understand why, because there's 33 Haidas across the country, and we're in all 50 states now, because Alaska just actually came on board uh, in the last couple of months. And, uh, and I, I did not volunteer to work in Alaska. I can only imagine what kind of drug problem they have. And, and I think that'd be, what, three months a year? But, um, but they're telling me different. So, and, and they do have a big postal interdiction issue up there because a lot of the stuff coming in from the southeast is all going through postal facilities up there. Um, but so you have 33 hides across the country. Well, the unique thing, the reason it's good that it's under the office of the president is because... It's not under a federal agency, and, and being a career DEA guy, I could say, okay, well, it'd be great if Haida was under DEA, but that's wrong because every one of the 33 Haidas across the country are run by what's called an executive board. And in Houston, for instance, I have 20 bosses. I have 10 state and local uh, agency heads, and I have 10 federal agency heads. I have 
five sheriffs on, uh, out of that 20, five are Texas sheriffs, and, uh, and four are presidential appointees from the federal side. But when they get in a room, nobody has any more say-so than, uh, than the other one. Everyone has one equal vote. And that's how all the hiders are run, because the guys, the boots on the ground in those regions, they know how to attack their drug problem, and that's exactly what's happening. Uh, in Texas, you have four Haidas. You have uh, El Paso, you have Dallas, and you have Houston Haida, which is the yellow counties there along the Gulf. And then in San Antonio in South Texas are the blue counties. Uh, Congress is the only one that can appoint a uh, county as a designated high-intensity drug trafficking area. A lot of small rural, rural counties have tried to get actually part of this uh, federal grant funding. Uh, but uh, it's, it's actually difficult. A lot of them are more centric to uh, southwest border and to um, major metropolitan areas. And uh, in a nutshell, I'll give you an example. In 91, I was, uh, of course, I had been formerly Houston Police Department, then I was with DEA. I was in a group with 12 DEA agents, and uh, they said, Mike, you're going to be going to this new thing that Congress just formed called the High Intensity Drug Trafficking. So you're going to go down to another floor, and you're going to be part of this group. And I'm like, no, boss. Um, actually, Tommy Austin and I know, knew my current boss, uh, Jerry Rice, that Tom said, I'm good. I'll just stay here. I like it where I am. And he says, no, you're going to go down to this HIDA task force. I go down there, and they put me in a group with two FBI, two customs at the time. Now they're called HSI, two DEA, two Pasadena PD, and it, the list went on. HPD, Harris County, put us in a melting pot. But it was amazing. If I was targeting, let's just, I'm going to make up a name, John Smith, uh, as a major trafficker in uh, Houston, Texas, what used to take me two months to compile by calling my buddies on the phone, everybody had their database in one room, and it was amazing what, how fast we could get things accomplished by pull, working completely on the same, same sheet of music and, and together for one common cause, and that's kind of what I'm trying to sell to you guys today about us all combining the resources we have. That's what Hyde is about. Now, so also as a line officer, I'm, I'm going to make an admission to you here today is that I had, I had a, uh, a cultural problem that when I'd come encounter, and by the way, we're, we're arresting, we're going after cartels and major distributors. We're not arresting lower end, addicted user, end users, and... Um, but I, in, in all fairness, I'd see an addicted person. I'd had come up in contact with a few uh, friends and family friends that had it, but I, I had a cultural problem in law enforcement saying, that's their problem, self-inflicted, that they need to take care of their business. They brought this on themselves. And I don't think it's as bad in law enforcement as it is now, but... Um, this, this uh, video slide that I'm going to show you, we actually just got it ready Tuesday. It's going to be kicked out to the roll calls of all the uh, police departments in, in the Houston Hyder region. And then we're going to, you'll see it has a Houston flair, but we're also going to do one in Dallas and San Antonio. They're all going to have their own individual flair. And you guys are going to see it before the patrolmen are going to see it. But we're trying to actually create an awareness and let these patrol officers know how we can actually do better in trying to prosecute some of these people slinging poison on our streets. Hope you enjoy.
I hope you can hear better. How about it, guys? There's no sound. promise you we tested before and it worked great. This uh, kind of in memory of uh, Blaine Padgett, you'll see he was a Rice uh, University football player and his dad really wanted, what I'm kind of finding about a lot of the parents that lose a, a child or a loved one is they, they really have, and you guys could probably tell me a whole lot better, but they really have a need to try to see if they can prevent other, other families from, from preventing the same thing. And that's what we're trying to do with the patrol officers. And you could actually probably think of some other ideas that I would welcome uh, con you guys contacting me if you have any other ideas how we do it. case of Blaine Padgett after he was found dead back in March. The former Rice football player from Katy has been arrested and charged for causing the death of another player. Officials say Padgett died due to toxic effects of carfentanil, which is an extremely powerful and deadly opioid. I, I tell people the, the best day of my life was the day my son was born. He was the first kid and, and the worst day of my life is when he left. He was really special, not just to his immediate family, but to extended family and friends. He was just that guy, bigger than life. I wish I could go back and keep him from taking that pill. We had no idea this was even out there, you know, and Blaine was a normal 21-year-old. Um, so much ahead of him. He dreamed of going pro. Uh, from what the coaches said, he there was a possibility that he could have. Uh, not to mention getting married, and having children, and you know, just being just being blind. He was very um, always very loving. Fentanyl is taking the opioid epidemic to a new loving fentanyl. More potent than heroin. Another drug is surging. Fentanyl so potent you could die with the syringe still in your arm. Carfentanil, an opioid used as an elephant tranquilizer, is a growing cause of overdoses in the United States. This photo compares a potentially lethal dose of all three drugs, showing that it could take just a few grains of carfentanil to kill someone. If you just look at national statistics, I mean, we're looking at about 42,000 opioid-related overdoses 
every year. The University of Pittsburgh Public Health Department states that's understated and believes it's a little closer to about 70,000. Now, if you focus in on the Houston area, since 2013, we've seen a 135% increase in opioid-related deaths for the Harris County area. So if you break that down even further, you can take a look at heroin. We've seen about a 380% increase in opioid-related deaths related to heroin. And then if you break it down into fentanyl, we're looking at about 690% increase in fatal overdoses due to fentanyl. If you can get to the dealers, I think it will solve a lot of the problems and stop the supplies from coming in. Um, I, I, I think that's the key, and that's when I speak to narcotics, that's what they're doing. That's what they're really trying to do. By identifying the dope dealers, the ones that are the most dangerous, selling the most potent substances, if we can identify those folks, we can target them, and we can charge them, and we can protect some of those folks that they're preying on. I have taken cases into the grand jury just like this. I have taken a case where a person provided fentanyl or carfentanil to another person. That case was accepted. We charged them and then indicted in the grand jury. Um, and much of it was thanks to the, the police officer's great work of collecting evidence, including the cell phone, and uh, documenting things nicely. When you come across the scene and someone is overdosed and they're dead, I, I would just do everything you can to, to give that person the benefit of the doubt that, hey, something went wrong and maybe it was out of their control. Get that phone if possible. There's an entirely different story for those north central states and definitely the northeast that's been dealing with this for several years. Um, but we have not gotten to that point, but you can see we're on a steady, rapid incline. And unfortunately, I, I think to some extent it is going to come this direction. I just hope we can curtail it. It's time to address the problem head on and to change the way we think about responding to an overdose. The location of that fatal or non-fatal overdose is a crime scene. A crime has occurred. And under the law, a person that delivers a controlled substance that is ingested by another and results in the person's death has committed the crime of delivery of controlled substance resulting in death. A dealer delivered those drugs that resulted in the death of the victim. They need to face justice. They need to be sent to prison. For that to happen, an investigation by the patrol officer that responds to the fatal or non-fatal overdose must take place. And the crime scene needs to be processed and witnesses need to be identified. We ask that you do a thorough report, take pictures of the scene, recover all drugs and packaging and tag them into evidence, collect the cell phone, ask friends and family members who are present if they know the password of the phone and document that. The cell phone is gold. It helps us determine who the dealer is, what his cell phone number is, when they met, and establish a timeline regarding the time of death. Interview and document witnesses. Get identifying information and ask them if they know who the dealer is and where he lives. By processing this scene, we will have a treasure trove of information that will allow other investigators to follow up on your hard work, target and take down those dealers that are selling some of the worst substances known to man. There are many ways police officers save lives and positively affect families every day. This is one more opportunity. Let's take advantage of it.
Well, and and I think right now, if we're very proactive and and um, go on the offensive against these peddlers that are you know basically peddling poison, um, and we make some statements early on um, with some high-profile cases, that maybe it could slow down that save influx. Lives. Yeah, and save lives. I drive your truck. I think uh, many of you sitting in here probably can think of times where you encountered uh, patients that you were working with that actually were, was never on the police, never came to the police attention, and, and you could take probably some lessons to help law enforcement in those situations because there's a lot of situations aren't even coming to, the, uh, to our attention. Um, obviously, in the, the Houston Hyder region, we have the coastal we have the coastal counties that go all the way from Louisiana all the way down to Brownsville, and um, and so things are our primary focus is our maritime threats, and then uh, you, as everybody knows, I don't yeah, it still works. Uh, the CBP has all the uh, has charge of all the uh, ports of entry where people are coming across from Mexico, but the Border Patrol has has responsibility for the inland checkpoints. So if you've gone down to Brownsville and drove up, you knew you had to come through the Border Patrol check station, and all the narcotics that seized there, all those cases where we're seizing big loads at those, we're trying to tie those back to the cartel. And as you can see in Texas, a lot of our focus of all four HIDAs are trying to focus on, on the, the drugs that are coming into our area. Because if you think about it, what, what we've seen in my whole career, the traffickers, they'll, they'll stash her, they'll get it to the U.S. side just on the southwest border, but then they got to move it past the checkpoints and then they're stashing it here, and then they're loading it up in 18-wheelers to go. Some stays in, in Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, El Paso. The rest of it goes to points across the country. And uh, so that's, that's our focus. But I can tell you that of late, our focus has been not only on law enforcement, but it's been in collaborating with everybody sitting in this crowd. What are the top drugs, that, according to uh, our law enforcement, uh, the top drugs that we have to deal with are methamphetamine. It's, it's still our number one threat. Now, if you ask somebody in New England, Haida, of course they're gonna say our number one threat is heroin and fentanyl. But amazingly enough, cocaine and methamphetamine are really going off the, off the scale. And I'll, I will give you a, a clue, there was a, about four years ago, there was a change in the Colombian government down there. We used to have a very good interdiction of the coca leaves and the coca crops down there, but uh, that hasn't been happening uh, of late, and there is a surge of cocaine coming to this country. It's already here, and you're going you're gonna to have to be dealing with that in this audience a lot. And, um, and of course, the synthetic cannabinoids and the synthetic drugs, prescription drugs, Marijuana, and of course, the people in this crowd know that our teens are having to deal with marijuana. Their their major threats are the marijuana, the synthetic cannabinoids, 
and the controlled prescription drugs. I went with a HPD investigator into one of the CBD shops the other day, and uh, one, one clue when you go in there is you see CBD oil, $30, $30, $30, then you come to one that's $130, and that's their best seller. Well, th there's a clue for the investigators there because what we, uh, we took that to a lab, and of course what was in that was not just uh, CBD oil, but it was uh, synthetic cannabinoids. And of course, uh, many of you may have encountered people the absolute insane way that different people react to uh, the synthetic cannabinoids. What's, what's killing people in Harris County? There's a list, and I'd be glad to share this electronically with anybody in the crowd, but it, it, in 2017, it, it basically lists everything that uh, the top, from the top down to the bottom, but cocaine at the top, prescription opioids second, and it goes all the way down to, um, to the list, and I'd be willing to share that with you, but you can see most of that is an increase, um, and that goes back to what the HFD uh, uh, supervisor was talking about in the video, you know, that there, there's, some, there's some real indicators, and I'm really worried about the fentanyl that uh, is coming on the radar. I'm probably, I had to, I wondered if I should even be talking about this, because I think you guys know this better than even law enforcement, but with the methamphetamine being our number one threat in the pretty much throughout Texas with all the HIDAs, you know, the lower prices and the higher percentages have led to an increased demand through the state. And um, we're, we're seizing methamphetamine uh, coming from Mexico. You don't see the one pot, uh, you don't see the people with the pseudo-federal laws and everything in Texas. We really don't have to deal with that very rarely anymore. Everything's coming out of Mexico, and we're seeing it, uh, believe it or not, we'll, we'll stop a car at the checkpoint or we'll stop it on the highway coming in here to Houston or leaving Houston. Methamphetamine is in a liquid form, and a lot of times it'll be in the, uh, the radiator overflow. It'll be full of liquid, and you can't tell. And just, uh, I think, about a month ago uh, through the Sarita checkpoint, uh, they, they encountered an 18-wheeler with a bunch of canned pears. And uh, so they, uh, they opened one of the cans, they, they inspected the, the contents, it was full of canned pears. They opened one of the contents, poured it out, sure enough, there's the pears. And about an hour after, after the uh, truck had already left the checkpoint, they, uh, they looked and, and all the uh, liquid where the pears had been sitting turned into a white crystal powder. Mm -hmm. They tested and sure enough it was methamphetamine. So immediately they said, hey, see if you got put up all points built and see if you can find this 18-wheeler. And crazy enough, it was going to Houston, but it came up from the valley all the way to San Antonio and they caught it in Seguin as it was going towards Houston. So obviously he wasn't taking the most expeditious route. Um, as you know, the, uh, the addiction po potential is just insane with methamphetamine. They say the National Institute of Drug Abuse said that 40% are addicted at their first use, and then the people that aren't addicted that use it a second time, 60% of those uh, are addicted. And, and you know of all the, uh, the impact to our society about the crime. And, and of course, these people, First thing that happens, they lose their family, their jobs, everything important, and then they still have to support the habit. So what a, what a plague this is on our society. You've seen the facts. Uh, in 17, we lost over 70,000. 
I am encouraged on a national level, and Laura's going to be talking about this, uh, where we're seeing some decline on there. Fentanyl is, is, is our real big thing that we're going to be discussing. But when 70,000 people lose their lives, sometimes it's hard. It's hard. We hear these numbers, and um, I, like to, I like to use this number. Uh, that's Chicago. That's uh, during the Chicago Bears game, Chicago Soldier Stadium. That has a maximum of capacity of 62,000. So when we hear the numbers all the time, you go, oh, 70,000 lost their life. That puts in perspective, that's what 62,000 looks like. So, so it's really what you guys are doing is important to try to get these, especially with the opioids. Uh, getting these guys back on the right track is just an incredible task on your parts, in my opinion. And I'm glad it's you and not me, because I, I can't believe they actually paid me to do this. And, and I'm glad there were people like you that were willing to take this task home. I want to briefly talk about fentanyl. You saw in the, you saw in the uh, video clip how potent and lethal it is. And, and it's funny, all, all my friends, of course, I'm getting older now, and a lot of them go in the hospital, and they'll say, oh, they put me on fentanyl. And, uh, but what I'm really concerned about, and this is going to impact you guys directly, and uh, is all the, the counterfeit prescription drugs that are coming across the southwest border from Mexico. They're, they're putting out pills. We've, we've had backpackers coming in, illegal aliens coming in with backpacks, and they've got pills, and those pills, you cannot tell the difference, and they're being, they're being put out in the general public for a reduced price, and they, they look like they're really legitimately uh, pill bottles, and it's very scary, and, and the parents that I've been meeting all across this nation are looking at me, and at first I was a little skeptical. They said, little Johnny, he's never, never had trouble with drugs. I don't think he ever experimented with marijuana. He took one pill one night studying for a test while he's in college thinking it was Adderall. And I was, at first I was a little skeptical, but you heard Blaine Padgett. You know, he, that, his son died from a, a counterfeit prescription drug that he thought was oxy that ended up being, uh, having fentanyl in it. And, and I will tell you this too, some of the places we are encountering where the, the pill mills, where they're in Houston, where we've been seizing these uh, pill mill operations, it's going on in a large scale in Mexico, it's going on in Houston, you'll see some pictures. Man, the conditions <laughs> that I'm looking at of these people, what, and people are ingesting that, with all the, it, my wife's a big nutrition freak, and, uh, and I showed her a picture of, of one of the uh, suspects that was putting together these pills, and it made her decide she didn't even want to take ibuprofen anymore. So these things are, they look, they look really legit. And why are, why, are they, why are the traffickers wanting to put fentanyl in, in the pills? Two reasons. The profit margin is incredible. Think about it. If you, if you brought in a kilo of Coke from Columbia in Houston, you're going to pay roughly about $20,000. You can step on it with cutting agents and make it three kilos pretty safely and still have a market for it on the street being strong enough. Fentanyl, you take that little grain, you pay $10,000 for a kilo of fentanyl, how far does a kilo of fentanyl go? But the, the most important thing these traffickers are doing, why are they putting fentanyl in there? Because somebody takes a pill that they think is oxy from dope dealer number A, they say that is the best high I've ever had. 
And that's it, it's for the customer base to, to get them addicted and coming back. Everybody knows, you, if you watch TV, you know that uh, fentanyls, we're really doing a lot. The U.S. government is doing a lot to try to curtail all the uh, fentanyl that's coming in from China. But the worst thing is, it's going into Canada and it's going into Mexico. Primarily, that's my biggest concern about, because it's coming through the southwest border, through the cartels, through all their routes that they already have established and all the ways that they're, you know, we, we don't catch as much... You know, I would say we're lucky if we're probably catching 25% of everything the cartels are shipping up. I briefly want to go just through a couple of pictures here because I really don't want to take away from Laura's presentation. Here's a pill mill that we took down in a, in a storage shed in, Houston, in southwest Houston. There's a closer look at the pill mills. And look look at this. This is, a, this is their... their they're stamps that make it look like it's coming from CVS, and you cannot tell the difference. I can't tell the difference. Um, here is uh, in May in Dallas, uh, they took down a major pill mill uh, operation and they seized 500,000 pills, but they were, uh, these pills are all coming in from the Sinaloa cartel. And it's a lucrative business. And, and I'll give you a clue. A lot of our illicit pills are being stolen, sold on the stove. Uh, they, they're being sold on the street for about $20 a pill. This, this group is selling them for $5 a pill. And unbelievable the amount of uh, pills coming through here. There's, a, um, there's another look at the Dallas operation, but um, it, it's something that you guys are going to have to deal with, and unfortunately, and, and law enforcement is willing to work with you guys as far as trying to do this together and try to do it in a way that we can uh, make a bigger effect. I'm so happy to bring Laura on now because I think she's going to give you some, some things that you can actually take away and, and put to use in your own practices. And again, in the lobby, autographs, $25. Of, <laughs> I, I do want to bring up, um, I brought about 25 of these. This is a Houston High to Threat Assessment. And it's got some real good indicators and 25 obviously isn't going to do very good for this crowd. I'm going to leave them on this table up here but I can get them electronically to anybody that sends me an email and asks. So, Laura, thank you so much. Mike's going to keep me on time, but I don't know about you. I don't think he needed me today. <laughs> like, I could have listened to you for 30 more minutes. Um, something that I immediately noticed about Mike, this was last Friday when you called? is how soothing his voice is. Like, are you all relaxed now? And I feel like I need to pep you up and excite you again because it's just so soothing. Thank you for that really important information. It helps really set the stage and the context for what I'm about to talk to you about. And I've got super big shoes to fill, guys. Jack is an amazing man, and these heels are not going to cut it. He really was going to bring some rock star information to you today. but. I wanted to honor, when I was talking with Mike about the presentation, I wanted to honor a lot of that content and what he was going to bring to you, while at the same time sharing with you a little spin about what I experienced of the Washington-Baltimore-Hida and kind of this lens of treatment and prevention and how it's 
especially prevention, is prevailing my entire thought process around this whole thing. You're going to see with the slides as we advance them that really everything we talk about today can fall under the umbrella of prevention. Raise your hand out there if you consider yourself a preventionist. Good. I guarantee that every single one of you are preventionists. Raise your hand if you treat to prevent further harm. <laughs> there we go. And so I wanted to start out today by sharing, I very rarely, and your slides are not going to have that picture of my kiddos up there um, on them because I'm, I'm very aware of social media and, and not sharing pictures of my family with many people. But you guys, I wanted you to stick with me here and let's ground ourselves in this idea this journey, this mindset of prevention, and how it's been changing. And I really thought that just showing you a personal picture of my life, my world, what I live for, and talking you through my mindset around primary prevention right now, and then sharing with you an experience I had with an Uber driver, as well as everything that I do in this world of treatment and how this nationally, this mindset around prevention has shifted and we're living in this worst case scenario, worst case prevention scenario right now. So how many of you have kids? Okay, this is something Jack could not bring to the presentation. <laughs> I'm a mama <laughs> and he can, he's not a mama, but he may be a father, but just being a parent, I watch, my oldest is now nine. She's in fourth grade, about to turn 10. She's already in that tween stage, if you can believe it. A lot of emotional roller coasters going on. But in all of the kids, I notice their vulnerabilities because I work in this field. And I notice their vulnerabilities to what they could be exposed to. And with Audrey, our oldest, she's firstborn, she's responsible. You know, she's, there is nothing about her that is not absolutely wonderful, but she's insecure at times. And she's easily influenced. And so I see that in her. And then in Aaron, my second oldest, he's the class clown. He's brilliant, but he's sneaky. And he has started to lie over the last few months, you know. Did you take those chocolate chips in your room? No, Mama, Gwyneth did, you know. And so these personality characteristics I'm starting to notice in them, and it's creating somewhat um, of an awareness for me, and I talk to them, and I talk to them because about my job, because I am a talker and a thinker through these things to the point where my husband says, Laura, for the love of all that is good, just let them enjoy their ice cream, you know? <laughs> Stop talking to them about drugs and what you do at work. But my youngest, Gwyneth, she's our spitfire. And she rules the roost at preschool. She ruled the entire after-school program. And I love that about her, but I also see her strong will. And she's going to do what she wants. And so when we think about primary prevention, and how many of you are familiar with the differences between primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention? Raise your hand. Okay, not that many, so I'm going to do a brief overview in terms of how we think about it at Washington Baltimore Haida and, and as a nation for many organizations. Primary prevention is preventing use at all. Preventing them from touching that substance, from even being exposed to this substance, just preventing that use at all. And that's where I'm at with our kiddos. I ask them, what are you learning about in school about drugs? 
and I, I'm consistently aware of what Audrey brings home in terms of pamphlets. That's now. When we think about secondary prevention, so primary is really about increasing the awareness. There are school programs like Too Good for Drugs. You remember DARE. Um, you know, all these types of primary prevention programs are really about increasing awareness and preventing that use. When we move into the secondary realm, then we're thinking more about identifying those who may be using and who are in that risky, problematic stage. Maybe they um, have started into more of the severe stage and they need a referral to treatment but it's identification and appropriate intervention within secondary prevention domains, right? So these are programs like SBIRT. How many of you have heard of SBIRT? Yeah, and even law enforcement does its own type of identification. It's not a formal screen like the DAST or the audit, but it's its own, for they have a feel and they identify through their own gateway. And then when we think about tertiary prevention, these people already have established substance use problems. You're, the majority of you right now are working with, within tertiary prevention realms, right? Which is why you can call yourself a preventionist. And the goal of that prevention strategy really is to prevent further harm, prevent further negative consequences from occurring, right? And more importantly, preventing worst case scenario, death, right? And unfortunately, that's where we are as a nation right now. You just heard one little salt grain, right, of fentanyl can just wipe someone out. Blake's death, you know, one pill, one pill, and it's over. And so I want all of you as professionals to think about psychologically, how many of you work with trauma? You can't not work with trauma, right, when you work with addiction most of the time. But how we are living in this constant state of anxiety around what could happen in just a matter of seconds. My Uber driver, a few weeks ago, when I was on the way to a training from a hotel, was a four-mile drive, and listen to what happened within that four miles. Get in the car with my cup of coffee, excited to go to this training, just relaxing. And you know, with Uber, you can either have a super chatty one or kind of a silent, staunch one. I kind of prefer the silent just because I'm usually on FaceTime with my kids or catching up. In this case, I got one kind of in the middle, and he's just a super sweet guy, and started um, with the formalities. Hello, how are you? Where are you headed today? Well, headed to a prevention training conference. Oh, what do you do? And I don't know about you, Mike, but how many of you can say what Haida is right now? <laughs> okay, good for you. I, it took me the longest time. I don't tell people what I do, Mike, especially Uber drivers. Like, they don't, no one gets it. It's just so hard to explain what you do with Haida because you have to explain all of Haida first, right? And then you explain what you do with it. Anyway, I now say I work with the prevention and treatment of drug use. That's what I say. And he said, oh, and the mood in the car shifted. And within that four miles, I got his story around his 22-year-old that has not come home yet. He was waiting. And what's so interesting when you think about trauma is just his affect when he's telling me the story. How they're waiting on his kid to come home. How it's episodic when he does come in. It's usually to try to get money to go buy 
uh, the loot, and his wife has disowned the child, but you know struggles with that. The sister has already had her many things sold from her department uh, apartment by her brother, and at the end of it, I said, "I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry." And there's, you know, I wish that I could do more, but. In listening to your story, you said that he started with marijuana a few years ago, but that two years ago he had been offered a prescription drug, right, with one of his friends at a party, and that kind of was the next step. And then it moved into, I think he said it was within the last two months, he had heard about um, him taking something for pain, taking something for pain, but had seen needle marks. And so he wasn't making that correlation between, oh, he'd moved from the pills now to injecting. And when he questioned about the injection marks that he saw when he happened to come in one day, um, obviously the son said nothing about it. And so he had heard about heroin, but he didn't quite get that it was an opioid analgesic. And and just the, the lack of education, bless his heart, he had tried to educate himself and just make sense of all this. And guess what I asked him? There is something that you can do. Have you heard of naloxone? Because he was worried about never seeing his kid again. And so I just instructed him on how he can get access to naloxone, what it does, educating his family, having, giving them access, this guy's friends. And that's all I could do. And then I got out and went to this training conference. And, you know, I just wished I could do more more for this guy, but that's worst case scenario mindset that he's living in every single minute of his life. And so I just wanted to shape this presentation with the idea that we used to live in primary prevention mindsets, and that's great. We're investing a lot of money into that right now as well. But we need to fully recognize how our nation has shifted at large within its mindset. And we're dealing with family members and law enforcement and first responders. They're being traumatized as well. And so how can we manage that with our strategies moving forward? So many of you know that long ago, several years ago, drug overdoses actually overtook motor vehicle crashes for injury deaths, right? There's no question about that. But I also want you to look the slides or for some reason coming up a little funny. I want you to look at that green line right underneath it. What does it say? Oh, yeah, it's hard. What does it say in yellow? Suicide. We're seeing, oh, oh, it's dangerous. Mike, you might have to save me, so get ready. Um, That's the problem you get with wearing heels. I should have worn jack shoes today. But suicide... Are we seeing a, a decrease or an increase in that? An increase. And this all flows together, guys. You as addiction professionals know that the behavioral health component is one piece, but it's not the only piece. Social determinants? Raise your hand if you understand that employment, that housing, that neighborhood environment, how that impacts the drug trends as well and suicide. It's all part of the big picture here, and we can't ignore any one piece of that. And so if we look at the different um, drugs, the categories of drugs, really, so opioid analgesics, like I said, the Uber driver, he's not going to understand that term, but pain meds, 
maybe. And so those are overtaking, and they have been on an uptick for the last several years as well. Heroin's kind of plateaued a little bit, because you, you know, as you said, fentanyl, um, as part of our opioid, opioid analgesics, which I'll show you in the next slide. And then we've got our cocaine also on the rise now, as Mike was demonstrating. And so when we break down opioid analgesics, this uh, synthetic opioids other than methadone, SOOTM, right, that's really your fentanyl. Look at that, right? A picture is worth a thousand words. Skyrocketing. So seizures within this graph does not refer to the medical term seizures. This is really law enforcement. So within HIDA, what are they seizing? And you can see here that heroin, you know, it's still pretty healthy, more than double since 2011. Cocaine, look at that. And it's not expected to go down anytime nope. soon. Meth, ice, or crystal meth. Scary, right? You can see now why tertiary has to blend with primary prevention. We've got to, this is no joke. All right, and so then let's talk about cocaine a little bit more here. We've got, um, here in the blue, are all the deaths involving cocaine. And then if you look at the orange line, you've got cocaine only, and then if you look at the yellow line, it's cocaine mixed with uh, an opiate, right, of some sort. Look at that. Lots of synergy, lots of mixtures going on out there. Some that we don't even know about yet. You know, we just kind of discover them as they come. And then for this particular slide, what I want you to take away from this is look at this. In 2017, for both cocaine and heroin involved overdoses, fentanyl was a part of it. So when they analyzed it, fentanyl was a part of those cocaine and heroin overdoses. And I bet that the majority of the time they may not have even known that fentanyl was in there when they took it, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, so this is just to give you a, a big scale picture around overdose increases. So this is 2015 to 2016, right? And we're focused here mostly on the right middle of the country, Texas. You're in there, okay? And then we age adjusted it in 2017. Okay, so you're seeing a little bit of movement. And then here's 2018, and we see nationally a percent change. So think about everything that's happened, our guidelines, right, that have come out around prescription, prescribing the opioid. I mean, that's been wildly effective. Think about the prescription monitoring programs that are now being promoted nationally. Most states have them, all states, I believe, have some derivative of them, okay? But still, we're struggling, and so we're getting ready for what I'm going to talk to you about is the second tsunami with stimulants. And I just want to take a moment here and put a plug in for when the whole opioid epidemic first started, there were a lot of us, probably including you guys, many of you guys, saying, stop putting out money just for opiates, right? Like, this is an addiction problem, right? Let's build infrastructures for addiction, right? And you see that 
changing in a lot of the requests for proposals coming out now, that they're asking for not just opioid specific. It was important to get more MAT and other types of treatment out there, and so there was definitely a benefit from that. But over time, if we want to build systems of recovery, right, it's for addiction. It wasn't specific to the substance, which was opioids at the time, and now we're seeing cocaine stimulants. So in Texas, here you guys go, just to stress my point and Mike share a little bit with you, yes, you saw a 27% overdose increase with your opioids, but look at your increase with your psychostimulant overdose deaths. And take a pause and a moment to really appreciate that, because I can tell you I just did a... Um, a webinar on cocaine stimulants, but cocaine specifically, around the 12 different types of cravings. How many of you are cocaine experts? You feel like you really understand what happens to the body when it uses cocaine. The, these different types of cravings are amazing. You instantly understand why one use, right, could really just transform the brain. All right, so our second tsunami, yes, we've got a lot of strategies at play and we are managing the opioids, but the stimulants are coming right behind it and we need to brace ourselves for that. What are we doing about it? Well, at the urgency of the President's Commission on Combating Drug Addiction and the Opioid Crisis, we, in, we actually have approach this from an information sharing collaboration perspective, right? There was this acknowledgement that everyone's got these critical pieces of information, right? Houston Haida has some information. At the state level, there's information. Even within your jurisdictions, there's information, but it's not being shared. And so we can't analyze it for meaningful conclusions, right? But if we could, Think about the impact that could have, because then we could set ourselves up for success and prepare future, lay a future foundation for what's coming. So, what happened is in 2018, there was an enactment of an amendment to Section 707 of the ONDCP Reauthorization Act. Okay, and in this amendment, they stress, let's implement some of these overdose response strategies and let's start coordinating and let's break down these barriers between jurisdictions. And so we're going to help you do that by removing some of these barriers. And what's come of that is the overdose response strategy. And it's had many names. It started out heroin response strategy, mm -hmm. then went to opioid yep. response strategy, and then went to overdose response strategy. And that's because of the cocaine and other things involved in it. And really what this is, it's a partnership. It's a public health, public safety partnership. And how many of you actively collaborate with law enforcement officials or organizations within where you work? Good, good. It's becoming more commonplace now, but this is at state um, and federal and local levels. 11 HIDAs are currently involved by 2020, all 50, all 33 HIDAs representing 50 states in Puerto Rico are going to be involved. And the goal of that is really to, like I said, reduce the fatal overdoses through information sharing and collaboration. It's an intelligence initiative. It's an intelligence initiative. 
Here are our strategic directions. All of you fall into here. And so when we think about, well, how is it coming to life, right? How is it manifesting? At the local level, we've got things like Kukli grants, combating opioid overdoses through community-led initiatives. I'm going to talk to you a little bit about that. CDC's put some money into that. We've got state teams. Part of the overdose response strategy was, let's pair a public health analyst with a drug intelligence officer. Let's have the drug intelligence officer kind of generate and share the information, that data that they're collecting, with um, public health analysts who will then consolidate it, analyze it, and submit reports then so that we can see the trends and we can start responding. And then we have some cornerstone projects, which are kind of this neat little thing that popped up out of the um, ORS, where they really focus that year, the DIO and the public health analysts, they public that year on something extremely timely, right, a timely topic. You'll see in 2016, they published a fentanyl report. 2017, they uh, focused on the Good Samaritan laws, which was a great idea, great idea. And 2018, last year, was linkage to care. Just briefly, in Erie, New York, Erie County, New York, one of those cornerstone projects was this idea that law enforcement would go out, if it was identified that there was a substance use problem, right, whether it was through an overdose or them um, intersecting in some way, shape, or form that drug trafficking, they would connect within 72 hours, I believe. Is that right? Within 72 hours, they would connect them with a behavioral health substance use professional who would reach out to them personally and try to get them engaged in care. And don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure the outcome was around 70% were actually then linked to care. Does that sound right? Mm -hmm. yep. For 2019, guess what it is? MAT and jails. That's going to be their timely topic that they're focusing on this year. Okay, and so I've already talked to you a little bit about what DIOs do. They really are the ones, they are, there's one in every state, right? They really are the ones that generate that information and share it. And then something cool that comes out of the DIOs, I just learned this, is these felony arrest notifications. And what you just need to see from this is that the DIOs are now taking felony arrest information and sharing it with the state of residence of those who are arrested. And if you look at 2016, look at the percent, what is that, what, 18% or so were from out of state nationally? But in 2017, you're over 50% from out of state. And that's one way, it's just one example of this information sharing. And our public health analysts are awesome. They're awesome, but they really are those ones that are analyzing and submitting those reports for public consumption so we can do something with it. CDC is our partner with HIDA for the overdose response strategy. How many of you have had an opportunity to work with CDC in some way, shape, or form? They're awesome. You should see the amount of resources and the way they think about these technical packages that they offer. I encourage you to go onto their website and just type in technical package for uh, domestic violence, technical package for um, abuse, drug abuse. What you'll find in those are a list of outcomes, evaluation measures that they look at, and it really helps you understand the way they're thinking about moving forward and advancing their approach to opioid and other drug use.
So just to give you some idea of funding, the CDC put in around $4 million, right, to fund things like Kukli. Kukli is in multiple states. I think it may be even in more now. This was Jack's slide, but I think it's in more now for 2019. And you can see that the money just keeps going up and up in terms of what they're investing. And again, Kukli, which is such a funny acronym, but combating opioid overdose through community-led initiatives. And one of them is the Martinsburg Initiative. I'm gonna share a little bit about that with you. It's a full-spectrum prevention model. That's one that they're investing in out in Martinsburg, West Virginia. This is a resource, you can just click on it, but this is something that was developed by the chief of injury prevention for um, the overdose response strategy. And if you just wanna click on that, it really gives you some idea of the evidence-based strategies for preventing opioid overdose. And so, to conclude these thoughts around the overdose response strategy, as I told you, we're moving into involving all HIDAs across all 50 states. And now I'm gonna put on my clinician hat and we're going to fly into the area of treatment and prevention from the Washington-Baltimore-Hida lens. In Washington-Baltimore-Hida, we cover parts of West Virginia, the majority of Virginia, actually parts of Virginia, Maryland, and D.C. That's our region. Baltimore's a hot spot for drug trafficking. It's a port, right? Is that what you would call it? And so we're seeing a lot of action in this area. But when I first came in and our executive director um, was talking to me about his vision for what he wanted for treatment and prevention, we're one of only two HIDAs that fund treatment. We fund 13 different treatment programs across our region, okay? So I was brought in to help oversee that and transform it, if you will, transform our approach because it was, our approach was old, like 10, 12 years old. And the first thing I told Tom was, I love the idea that you're kind of funding treatment and you're kind of funding prevention, but Tom, it's all in the same bucket. We have to really merge our thought process and really address it as a continuum of care. And many of you have seen this and you're like, I'm right there with you, Laura. This, this is how I operate as well. So. When we think about prevention and my kiddos at school, right, and your kiddos at school, they're getting universal prevention strategies. They're getting too good for drugs, things like that. But most of you are working, my understanding, within this treatment recovery space. And it's not lost on you when I say that our RFP that we submitted this year. So we released a request for a proposal for our two and a half million dollars that we give to our 13 programs. And I told Tom, I want them to bid again. I want them to demonstrate in their proposal the need in their area, their evidence-based strategies, how they're sustaining it, how they're maintaining fidelity to those evidence-based strategies. How many of you work with moral recognition therapy? Okay, not as many as I thought would be. But other addiction, what are some other evidence-based practices for addiction that you're operating in your sites? Shout them out. Which one, what therapy is that? Okay, yes, CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. Dialectical Behavioral Therapy. 
wellness approach. So, I'm sorry, it was a bad idea, right, to ask you to shout it out. No, we can't really hear all of them. So, Solution-oriented therapy. Problem-solving therapy is a big one. All of these things you've just mentioned, they have evidence behind them. You'd be amazed how many people cannot tell you the evidence behind what they're doing. And so I asked Tom, can we just issue an RFP? Let's issue an RFP, let's get their thoughts organized, have them apply for it again. And I tell you what, three didn't apply. Three didn't apply. When asked to submit an application, they didn't apply. Um, you know, it's a lot to write a proposal, but yeah, they did it. But guess what? Several others did. And at the end of the day, we did end up funding, what I called it was Advancing Systems of Recovery for Addiction, the ASRA grants. And at the end of the day, we now have funded sites that we know are working within this space of we're not just treating, we are treating to then promote recovery. And they have full-blown recovery programs and they can speak to how their treatment falls in line with other microsystems of treatment going on within that area and how their patients are then connected and follow this line and journey of recovery long-term, right, for at least one year. How many of you know the magic number we're looking at now in terms of being years of recovery that we need? What are we targeting at a minimum for at least offering some support, some infrastructure? Five. So when we look at outcomes, historically we've been measuring one year, two year post uh, discharge from jail, post discharge from treatment uh, completion program. And that's good, right? Our recidivism rates are good, looking at one year, two years, but five is what we're targeting. If we can keep them clean for five years, we're seeing dramatic reductions. Okay, and so, Coming full circle, back to full spectrum prevention. You're probably like, Laura, I mean really, it takes a lot just to operationalize just one of these programs. I get it. I just operationalized Espert in the state of Virginia, right? And that was my life for years. But the point I want you to take from this, and these are just examples I came up with off the top of my head of ones that either we fund or we're involved with. In the primary realm, when we're thinking about what? Increasing awareness with primary prevention. These are some of the programs we fund. Secondary realm, prescription monitoring programs are designed to identify, right? Safe streets programs, when we fund in Baltimore, school screenings identify. They have their own surveys, right? And then our tertiary. I'm gonna talk about ODMAP as a tertiary example, which is really cool. How many of you have heard of ODMAP? Yay, good. All right, but just to put this in context, I wanna challenge all of you as preventionists, right, and prevention champions to really think about what would it be like, understanding now that we're, everything's merged in terms of our initial primary care prevention, primary prevention mindset to worst case scenario prevention mindset. It's merging now, so what would it be like if we had full-spectrum prevention models at play in our communities. Who's coordinating that? 
right? Because I guarantee you that you've got prevention programs going on in primary, secondary, tertiary, but who's kind of overseeing that and making sure that all of those tides are tied together? And if you do this, you are sure then that you're addressing all those populations that we have up here, right? Up here. Look at our individual. Individual is just one. The users, right, the kiddos before they use, they're just one population, right? It's the family members. It's the law enforcement. It's the community at large, right? It's those special populations, right? The uh, sexually transmitted disease populations at huge risk, right, for substance use. So, ODMAP, overdose map. Brainchild of the Washington Baltimore Haida, our executive director, Tom Carr there, who's brilliant, and I really wish that you could meet him. I'm going to put, post a picture of him on this one day. But why did they develop ODMAP? ODMAP is an, it's really like a spike alert system, right, so that people can respond. And I'm going to talk you through that process. But they developed it because you're seeing these people dropping dead because of the quick onset of the effects of these drugs that we're dealing with these days. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to not only collect that data in real time while it's happening, right? So have first responders, have law enforcement, have anyone who's available at the scene of the crime when it happens, right? Emergency room personnel, right? Have them enter it, enter the specs around that overdose, into a platform called ODMAP, which is real time. And then what happens is counties can then set a spike alert. So let's say Houston, right? How many counties? Houston has operationalized this, correct? What's the question? ODMAP, is Houston using ODMAP? No, it's, it's about, it's about two, two, three weeks away. Okay, yeah. Your other counties are, though. Yes. There are some other, your Haida district. So what happens is a county can set a spike alert. So if, let's say the spike alert's 10, let me show you on this one, right here. If it's 10, then once it hits 10, an alert is triggered to all the appropriate people. And a response is immediately put in place to alert not only first responders, but those users out there in the community who are about to get a bad batch of that stuff, right? And you're seeing this trickling effect in real time. I just want to finish on this slide. It also alerts you then when it's continuing, right, the numbers, and when it ends, when your spike has ended. So you know when that bad batch has passed through that county. But going back here, this is a picture of what it looks like in Virginia, right? And you can't see this very well, but you can see here, I think it's the orange, the red ones here, are fatal overdoses, and it talks you through Fatal overdoses, if naloxone was administered, how many times it had to be administered, and non-fatal overdoses. That's what all, essentially, in that legend, what you see these spots as being. And you see it conglomerating in areas, right? So this is where ODMAP really has shined. I mean, you've got the response at the local level, but look how we can see how drugs are moving through moving through the nation. So I'm going to start you out here, up at the top. We, have, we had something coming in, an overdose alert here on May 31st, 2019. 
right, Suffolk County. And then look, same day, you've got overdose spike alert, Camden, New Jersey. Next day, you're seeing it in Baltimore, Maryland. Day after that, you're seeing it in Henrico, Virginia, Richmond area. Isn't that neat? We see it traveling. So we know this helps on multiple levels, helps us manage this stuff. All right, and so this, for some reason, the slides just didn't um, confer as well. You can't see all the different pieces in this, but conceptually, ODMAP connects people, connects data. It allows you to share it rapidly with its real-time collection, respond rapidly, and then evaluate what just happened. Was our response effective, right? And then ultimately prevent more overdoses. It is a prevention strategy. All right, another one that's near and dear to my heart. How are we on time? Yep, I think we got about five, ten minutes. Okay, about five, ten minutes. Virginia Espert, screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment is a secondary prevention strategy. I highlighted two outcomes for you here after the first two and a half years of implementation of this project. The first outcome is 50% of those individuals who received a brief intervention in the clinics that we operationalized in, 12 clinics, right, across uh, Shenandoah Valley region, Northern Virginia region, were either within recommended drinking limits, let's think about the senator this morning, right? What an amazing, amazing talk that he gave us around stigma and kind of use and, and family patterns and cultural influences. They were either within normal drinking limits or they had decreased their level of risk, 50%, 50%. And then when we think about drug use, so we screened for alcohol, all illicit drugs, and depression, nicotine, but depression as a comorbidity. We connect them with services and offer interventions for that. But a little over one of every three who received an intervention for risky drug use, abstinent six months later. It's a big deal, describes the impact. And so I, I'd like to conclude and leave you here with the Martinsburg Initiative. When we think about full spectrum prevention, this is what it could look like. This is what it could look like, okay? This is what we're doing with the CDC in Martinsburg, West Virginia, all right? This is a visual that I developed because I'm a visual person and it just helps me connect everything and all the areas of operation. But I'm gonna start you here at the bottom. You see those dark blue bricks? That's the collective impact model. How many of you have heard of collective impact? If you have not heard, excellent. If you've not heard of it, go look it up. It's out of Stanford. Virginia has widely adopted it as an approach to multiple things. But it has five core principles. It promotes shared measurement, a common agenda among all the key players, mutually reinforcing activities, continuous communication, and backbone support. And so the backbone organization of the Martinsburg Initiative is going to be their school system, as well as their health department. Those two are gonna to work together. But you can see, I'm not gonna go through details, you can see the gateways into the model, and you can also see the different tiers. So I, I'll let you look at these 
last three slides, this is how I think about evaluation. And if you really want to transform the way that you talk about what you do, start speaking the language of value, impact, and quality. Okay? Start being able to show people and explain to people where the value is in what you do, not just the cost value. We are not paid nearly enough, right, for what we do. I still see patients one day a week, and solely just because I want to stay grounded and I love that individual impact. But there's the cost piece where you're influencing and preventing so many other things that require money to treat, to hospitalize, all that jazz. But there's also strategic value. Is what you're doing informing something else, right? There's value to your community. And then when we think about impact, you think about all your outcomes on, on all the different population levels on your community. And for quality, be able to speak to not only the evidence behind what you're doing, but how you're maintaining fidelity to that. How do you know that six months from now, you're still implementing that evidence-based practice the way that you were trained to implement it, right? I call it the VIC analysis. So just be able to speak to what you do and value impact and quality. And here's just a starter template that we use for like, this is for a primary prevention site, just some buzz questions to get them thinking through how they would think through value, impact, and quality. Thank you for listening to me today. We really appreciate being here. Oh, yes. Here's our contact information. I uh, really appreciate the time today. And uh, you guys have a great conference set up, and I'm excited for you all. And, if you have any questions, uh, you have all our contact information, and we, uh, we can do great things together. Thank you all again.